This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, my friends? How are you? Welcome back to the podcast. So good to be with you as always. On this episode, I interviewed Dr. Anthea Butler. She is a legend, my friends. She wrote an amazing book called White Evangelical Racism, well worth the read. We talk a lot about supremacy culture, Christian nationalism, how it embeds itself into religious systems, mainly Christianity in America, and what we can do to resist it. I will also admit she is a Philly native, and as someone who is 10 minutes from Philly. That warms my heart. She's also an Eagles fan. I am also an Eagles fan. Now, I'm recording this before the um, the the big games, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm recording this before the Super Bowl, so I don't know how the Eagles are going to do, but if they won the Super Bowl and you're listening to this, just know I told you so, and that's right, but if they lost, it was someone else's fault, okay? Just so we're clear on that, but, but for real, this is a great interview. I really hope that you enjoy it. And as always, I do want to say thank you for just listening to the show. If you want to help us out, give us a rating and review on iTunes, on, on YouTube, on Spotify, something like that would, would just help us out so, so much. I cannot thank you enough, friends, for being here. Hey, if you have feedback for us, by the way, if you want to give us some input or maybe recommend a guest that you want on the show, email us podcast at the new evangelicals.com is the way to do it. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Anthea Butler. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, I, I gotta be honest. It, this is truly a treat. Uh, Dr. Anthea Butler, it's it's a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. You're a very busy person. I see you all the time on TV and doing this and doing that. So I appreciate you carving out some time out of your busy day. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, you wrote a book that really, um, when I read it, it really I put a lot of things into perspective uh, for my like young adult years because my my journey was very much steeped in evangelicalism and really that white culture. And I yeah. remember a lot of what you talk about in the book, which is called White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. You talk about about the Tea Party and you know during um, Obama's um, candidacy. And I remember that too, but I was still very much I had to be maybe 18, 19. So I'm mm-hmm. still steeped in right wing talk radio from my parents. And, you know, a lot of what a lot of what you said, I was like, wait, 
I remember the tea party, but not that part about the tea party. So I, I appreciate you writing that book because, again, it was just helpful for me to get some more historical perspective from something that I was alive for, but had no lens to capture at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting you bring that up because I think for a lot of evangelicals, it was the same thing. They just thought, oh, you know, the Tea Party, it's it's about money. And I'm like, this wasn't about money. This was about racism. But okay, you know, it was it was wrapped up in a kind of an economic idea. But I think that's true for evangelicals for a lot of the story that I wrote in White Evangelical Racism. You, you may know about these things, but you didn't see them in that light because you didn't have the eyes to see it to be cast in that light, right? And so with the things you might have thought that were really good or meant that evangelicals were really open racially and everything, in reality, weren't that at all. And I think that's been the shocking part for people who are evangelical who've read the book and really tried to engage with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I definitely want to dive into more of that. But before I do, I, I like asking my guests a little bit about them. And my question for you is, how did you start your academic career that got you to a point where you're writing a book a, a, about evangelical racism in America? And then, of course, you're you're really everywhere. You're in the news. You're, you're really in the conversation in a big way. Um, what was your academic career like? Yeah, well, you know, unlike a lot of people, I came to the academy as a second career. I used to be, I used to work as a pension plan administrator and I, you know, balanced million, billion dollar trust and all of that kind of stuff. And then decided to go back to seminary and Fuller Seminary, in fact. And so my experience at Fuller introduced me to, you know, the cream of the crop of evangelicalism, obviously. And, you know, I was very active there. But when I went to go do my PhD, you know, I think two things happened. One thing that happened was that I realized I didn't have the whole story about evangelicalism. And even though Fuller was this great evangelical institution, they didn't really teach you about the history of evangelicalism. And I actually started learning that at Vanderbilt. And so when I did my PhD there, my advisor did a whole semester course on American evangelicalism as an African-American man. And that was a really great thing for me because I learned a lot and realized I had some stuff to grapple with. And then this was also the time when, you know, the Christian coalition was big in the nineties. You know, we, we went through nine uh, 11 and listening to the kind of thing that Jerry Falwell and them said about, you know, um, all the gays and everybody causing Don 11, which was just absolutely ridiculous. So I've seen a lot of this. And so this history that I write about in the book, it's partially about a bigger history of evangelicalism, but it's also been kind of by experiences of dealing with evangelicalism and people saying that they weren't racist, but yeah, they're kind of racist. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because so much of my own story thinking about this stuff is, is I'm kind of new to this, honestly. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. when 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 COVID happened and then um, the murder of George Floyd and so on and so forth happened, that mm -hmm. was a, a moment from for me as a white man where I said, mm, I don't know what it is, but something is not right. I don't have I, I know labels yet, no categories for this stuff. But as I started mm -hmm. digging into my own history, I was appalled to discover that I was not told the, the full story either. You know, I thought that Jerry Falwell, uh, you know, senior started the moral majority over abortion. Uh, turns yeah. out he was a racist, a segregationist. This stuff for, for someone who was, you know, um, indoctrinated in this, in, in this culture, mm -hmm. I was never taught that. And for me, and I think for a lot of other people too, I'm angry about that. Like I'm pissed off that I was never given the full story of my own heritage. 
Yeah, well, I think part of that has to do with, you know, the kind of stories that have been told about evangelicalism and the late Michael Gerson, who's somebody, you know, I always just sort of really clash with in terms of the things he would write for the Washington Post and the Atlantic, always had this kind of triumphal history about evangelicalism, right? But what was so interesting was the last op-ed he did was he basically said, okay, I now realize that the Republican Party is racist. And I was going to say, and by subset, all of those evangelicals who have voted Republican are kind of racist because they're they're voting for racial ideals and they don't really want to admit that. And so I think in, in that sense, you know, I'm not surprised about what you say. What, what I do think, though, is important is that evangelicals learn about all the parts of their history, both good and bad, and how their uh, political leadings have led them down a path into what I would just basically say, to use their terminology, you know, a shameful witness. Well, I would like your perspective on something I've been thinking about, and I would love your expertise here because you studied this stuff you know, and you're so knowledgeable on it. I have this theory in my head where I think about my experience and the people just in the pews who I grew up with who, even though they were voting for these policies that were racist, had no they, – they, they didn't think that they were, right? But then you have these leaders – uh, from in the movement who I think looking mm-hmm. back and even now are explicitly, they know what they're doing. And my, I'm trying to wrestle through this tension of like, you know, uh, my mom, a great woman has no clue who Jerry follow really was. She just has yeah. been taught that she's a, mm-hmm. he's a great person. What mm-hmm. do you make of that? Like how, how do you wrestle through that? Those two things kind of happening at the same time? Well, I say first, I don't wrestle through it, but I think, you know, for me, it's about the question of unconscious bias, you know, somebody like your mom or other evangelicals who don't know, they just think these things sound good because these people have told me, A, they sound good, and B, they've told me that they're godly. And so therefore, I'm going to vote for them because they say that this is, you know, this is God's will, right? And so these, this is the way that a lot of people are. There's a reason why Jesus called people, his followers sheep, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's hard to hear, but it's true. Hmm. And and the second part is, is that the leaders know exactly what they're doing. They understand it. They understand that's the way to mobilize people. And for evangelicals, they've made a bargain with the Republican Party. You could say when that started, you could say it either started during abortion, which is like the classic tale. You could say it actually started in the 50s with Billy Graham. You could say it started even earlier than that. Wherever you decide to lodge the story it's because they espouse the same kinds of social, political, and economic ideals, right? And those ideals are the things that they really want to see in society. But it's it's always never, it's always caused me very big interest, let's put it like this, to think about how evangelicals would like to tell everybody about their sex lives at the same time they can't control their own leadership who are always molesting people. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like every day on Twitter, I'll share another story and I gotta say, uh, hello, another pastor caught, you know, doing terrible things. Who's who's most likely is back in the pulpit. In some yeah. stories, it's 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 confirmed. And I do think to myself, like, you know, this movement that I've been a part of is so focused on. Really, I would argue these made up, uh, you know, trigger words like groomer, for example, and they won't yeah. even take seriously the actual grooming and child abuse happening inside their own spaces. Exactly. And the people mind. that they're voting for who are, you know, groomers and pedophiles and all this other stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah it, it's 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 a way to mark people and it's a way to gin up, you know upset and excuse. And every day, unfortunately, by using these words, evangelicals sound more and more like QAnon. I, I yeah. And this is a real problem because they are also buying in to the conspiracy complex. 
And this is a big deal and it makes a lot of money. And, you know, I think that what you have now are, un, you know, pastors who may be educated, but they only want to get their education from certain spaces. And as a result, they and they end up taking their whole flocks you know, into a space where they don't need to be. Mm. Do you think that the, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this. What do you, th- do you think the politics lead the theology in these spaces or the theology lead, leads the politics in these spaces or it's combined? What are your thoughts on that? Listen, first of all, let me get, just disabuse you of the notion of theology. Because theology is used as a boundary, but nobody's serious about the theology. I mean, if they were really serious, I mean, maybe the hardcore folks are, but I got to tell you that they don't care. They don't care. That's number one. And number two is the politics are the most important things. It's a political theology. It's not about politics anymore. So this is the problem. When you have all of these people you know, saying this stuff, that it becomes a real issue. Yeah. No, I, uh, I have to agree with you. Um, I, I do every time. Yeah. I, I, I hundred percent agree with what you're saying. It's helpful. And I appreciate you just kind of saying it so bluntly, like, Hey, there's not a theology here. You know, it's, it's not what you think it is, even though no. that language is used often. Right. I mean, in my circles, the Bible's clear. We stand on the truth of God's word, but I've realized more and more that's really a Trojan horse for power control and trying to make America white and, and, fundamentalist Christian again, if I could put it in that language. Yeah, yeah, um, no, you absolutely yeah. can. You absolutely yeah. can. When, when you were writing White Evangelical Racism, was there anything that 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 shocked you in your research for the book that was like, oh my goodness, I, I had no idea? Or were you just like, I know what's going on here and it's time to, to, to just I got to say, it. as a historian who's been doing this for a while, no. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, not shocking at all. And yeah. I think, you know, I could write the book the way that I did because I wasn't shocked. If that makes sense. I was prosecuting a case. And this is what I've told a lot of people. They're like, God, you're so clear. You're so concise. I'm like, because I know what the story is. And I knew the story I wanted to tell. And so there wasn't anything that was like surprising to me in terms of things that I found. There were all these things that I had either taught before or read about or knew about that were important. I think, you know, the only thing I would say that was the only most shocking thing was the story I tell that was in the other lynching book about the lynching that happened at the Methodist Methodist Episcopal Church in, I believe it was Oxford, Mississippi. That's the story that I tell, where they decided it was a Sunday. And instead of hanging the, ma- the black man that they accused of raping a white woman in the main hanging tree in the center of the city, they were like, well, let's take him over to the back of the church. I mean, that that's shocking to me that you think that it's okay to lynch somebody on a Sunday behind the church. That may be the only thing in that book that really was shocking to me, but the rest I, I just knew. Do you see um, the modern, uh, in, in, I guess maybe current expression of what we call Christian nationalism? Is it participating in the tradition of what you've seen as a historian in evangelical spaces? Can you speak to that for a few minutes? I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of the Christian nationalism thing is an old story. Call that the lost cause or all of these other things. We've seen this before. Okay. And, you know, in the lost cause, it was sacralizing the South, the losing South, right? Who ended up on the wrong side of the Civil War. They created a nationalist substructure in which they could continue to be the people they were. If we think about this in the 20th century, it becomes the kind of thing we see in the 1950s where we think about Americanism, right? 
Or you could think about, you know, what used to, what came before Make America Great Again was American exceptionalism, right? You heard that a lot during the 2008 campaign and everything else. And so then we got to MAGA and then we got to Christian nationalism. So Christian nationalism to me is a more proper terminology for all this because all during this time, there has been the belief that America is this Christian nation ordained by God, you know, depending on where you you fall on that spectrum, you think that the nation is linked to the nation of Israel, right? You think that, you know, church and state should not be separated. Mm -hmm. You think that, you know, leaders should be Christian first and foremost, right? And you think that this is part and parcel of what everyday life is. It is though people have forgotten that the Constitution says there's no religious test for political office. We have religious tests all of the time. And so all of these things, you know, to me, comprise Christian nationalism. And what we have to realize is that all of this is out of control. And it's out of control in the sense that this is not what the founders and framers wanted in the first place. You know, I'm thinking about what you said a couple minutes ago about when I, I mentioned, you know, which leads to what, the theology or politics. You said there is no theology. I think about that even in the in the same framework of like of how those folks view the Constitution, where they use the language of we care about the Constitution, we care. And, but in reality, when you really think about it, they care maybe about like one or two pieces that, that advances their agenda and everything else. Let me else tell you what part hell. they care about the most. They <laughs> care ahead. about the Second Amendment. Right. Okay. Right. And maybe the 14th that they can, you know, screw it up a little bit. But that's it. They don't care about the rest of it. Because if they if they cared about the rest of it, then they would care that people are able to protest and do what they want. I, I think Adam Sewer had a great article in The Atlantic this week about how, you know, basically conservatives have their own rules that you can be you can have free speech as long as you say the speech that we want you to say. Right. And so this is the way that this operates, especially for evangelicals. You can have free speech and freedom of religion as long as you say what we want you to say and believe what we want you to believe and to persecute who we want you to persecute. And so this is where it becomes, you know, look, this is my joke about all of this. I'll just put it in a nutshell. If Jesus walks up today, what is happening to him? He is going to get jailed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be vilified. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be talked about. And they're probably trashing him on Twitter and all the rest of the social media platforms. Well, that's kind of my joke on Twitter is I'll, I'll, I'll do a few statements of Jesus and then say Christian nationalists. No, that's Marxist. That's progressive. That's garbage. You know, like, because mm-hmm. it's true. Like if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you just have a yeah. hard time fitting it into this Christian nationalist alpha male. You know, the meek are, 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 are well, weak. Well, the earth, are you joking? The meek are going to have an AK-47. Right. And I, I think that's why so many folks, I, I'm one of them. Especially when Trump happened, that for me was a moment where I realized that I thought because I shared the same beliefs at the time with with this community that we shared the same values, but clearly we did not. Like they no, were, they were completely, you know, they were at, at polar opposites. And I, I thought again at the time where I was in my in my belief system, I'm thinking like, guys, like you know, you taught me about sexual purity, and here you are telling me to vote for the guy who really has has done so many unholy things. Right, right. Yeah. Make comments about his daughter, and and I, I, I'm I, I'm I'm sure for you it was no surprise, but for me at the time, I'm like, what is happening to my worldview? It just kind of came crashing down so quickly. Yeah, but you know, I think your worldview came crashing down so quickly because you've been trained not to see the world. Oof. Word. It's very simple. If you're trained not to see the world 
and your world you exist in is all white and all perfect and all striving for a type of perfection that doesn't exist, then you don't see the world. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, I mean, you have a way with words, <laughs> Dr. Butler, because you're right. I, I, I think about that often. And I think that's why so many people are trying are leaving those spaces because we realize like, wait, we were in a basement with the lights off for 30 years. Pretty and we much. were told any, anything outside of that basement is the world or you'll lose whatever you think you're going to lose. And in reality, we found better ways forward that make, I think, a lot more sense. Uh, you know, And we see Christian nationalism. We see how it's behaving. We go, this is, in my perspective, this is an antichrist position to hold. You know, It's certainly yeah. Christian. You can, you can find traditions in the Christian you know, faith of, of this kind of logic, but it's, it's, it does not help human flourishing ultimately, you know? Yeah. No, um, it which is it does not. It so, does not. I, I know that today, actually, we, we there was a, a hearing uh, over at the House. Was it the House Committee? Uh, where, yeah, House um, Committee. Yeah, yeah. There was a whole a whole section. It seems like that the term Christian nationalism is getting picked up by more mainstream media sources. Do you think that people in America are starting to wake up to what's been there all, all along, or what do you think about? I don't that? know if I would say the word "wake up." I I would say that they're aware. I mean, the question will become, and I, the question is for the next two years up to the run-up to the 2024 election is, does this term get hijacked by the right and right-wing politicos, right? And used as a way to make a wedge between, oh, we're the real, you know, we're the real Americans versus everybody else, or do people see it for the dangerous thing that it is? And that is a question. But there's nationalist projects all over the world right now. And I think we have to look at that as a way of people getting power through religious means. Yeah, well, I talked to um, Diana Butler Bass a few weeks ago, and she mentioned you know how Steve Bannon's kind of the the connecting force behind the Christian nationalism that we're seeing overseas in Europe and in Russia, and there's almost like this um, attempt to unite some of these movements, which would make sense because I think about Nick Fuentes, who sees himself as a Catholic nationalist, you know, mm-hmm. and he's pretty accepted in a lot of the more Protestant nationalist spaces, and it's Absolutely. it's it's a very weird thing for me. Because again, I grew up in a space that said, well, Catholics aren't true Christians, and all of a sudden that's out the window, and now they're united for a, I guess a bigger cause. Everybody's a true Christian as long as they believe everything politically that they're supposed to. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Oh, mind blowing. Yes, that is helpful. Do you think that, um, you know, I Samuel Perry and, and, um, and Andrew Whitehead say that, that, that people who identify as Christian nationalists are really not, not a, my, a majority, you know, as far as new, new numbers go, but as far as their power and influence and funding, it, it's pretty major. Do you see, um, as, as, we, as people become become more aware of Christian nationalism, do you see these groups um, really doubling down even harder, trying to maintain their power and control? Or do you think with enough of the... What do you the, think? What do you well, think is going to happen here? I, I think... I think that they're only going to double down, but I'm also wondering, because numerically they are shrinking, according to Andrew Whitehead, if, if, if that can mean... When you're struggling with your mental health, the world can seem pretty heavy. Like no one understands what you're feeling, or you're not sure how to ask for help. But here's the real truth. You're never in this alone. 988 Lifeline's trained crisis counselors are available 24-7 to offer the help and support you need to make it through. No judgment, no stigma, just someone to listen. Text or call 988-SUICIDE-IN-CRISIS-LIFELINE, day or night. 988. Hope has a new number.
Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life something positive where they're not well, in the I think it'd be something positive but the question is is have they already done the damage that needs to be done in order for them to stay in power that's a right. different way to praise this and, and the reason why i say this is because if you think about this just not on a you know very narrow level but you need to think about it on a bigger level how have things been gerrymandered we we dodged a bullet in the 2022 election cycle will we dodge that bullet in the 2024 election cycle you know, are we going to get Trump again? Are we going to get a new and improved Trump with DeSantis? Totally. Who's much smarter, much wilier, and, and you know, already has a pretty significant war chest, right? You know, and knows how to do this battle, this culture war battle, battle much better than Trump ever did and is very good at it, right? So I think we don't know this until after 2024. I think we're going to see a lot more um, upheaval. I don't think that, you know, to be honest with you, that we're done with one six. I mean, clearly with people shooting out power stations too in the past couple of weeks, it's very clear that that has not stopped. And I think that, you know, for religious leaders in the money that's out there right now, there will be a continued effort to try to mobilize because they didn't get what they wanted this time. They don't have control of all three houses. They have the they have the um, court and they have the House of Representatives, but they don't you know they don't have the Senate they don't have the executive branch. It you know it's going to be a battle. It's not going to ease up anytime soon. I tell my community that I try not to be one who um, plays along with uh, baseless fear mongering like like like, like we mm. see in those spaces. But I am afraid that we're only going to see more violence. Uh, from those spaces as we go further along because of how radicalized they are, how committed yeah. they are to the belief that God has given us dominion over this land and the enemy, you know, the, the, whoever, Satan, whatever, is taking it and whatever it takes almost kind of perspective. And it absolutely does concern me uh, for the future. Yeah, it should. I mean, because a lot of these people are willing to take up arms. I mean, just this weekend, Marjorie Taylor Greene said, you know, if we if it had been me and Steve Bannon and we had had some guns... This would have gone down the way it did. I know. And she said it in public. And they and I was applauded like, her. Are you drunk right now? How many drinks did you have? Are you stupid? But it, she yeah. said it. And I mean, I I take her at her word because her word's pretty good on this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, maybe as a historian, I, um, I think about how over the past six years, we've seen such a normalization of things that, at least in my memory as a young white evangelicals seemed fringe, like Proud Boys, for example. I mean, I remember being mm. you know, 25, people, oh, Proud Boys, wow, they're a fringe group. No one pays attention to them. And now here they are in our, you know, they're they're a household name. Have you, do you, have you seen the same thing or is this kind of par for the course with kind of the cycle of evangelicalism? There's a reason why the Southern Poverty Law Center exists. What do you think the KKK was? Not it's 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 not about somebody dressing up in a hood and going trick treating. You know, we've had groups like this. You know, the group that got broken in the nineties was Stormfront. 
because of the FBI. So that was white identity movements. That's what they called them back then. Now you got Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and everybody else. We have all, you know, that's the other part of the Constitution that's very interesting. Well-regulated militia. Why do we need a militia now? This is not 1776. It's 2022 going into 2023. But you got people who believe that they should be a well-regulated militia to put forth their ideas. And so when you get a bunch of tiki torch carrying idiots in Charlottesville and you get a young white woman who's killed because of their hatred and yelling out Jews will not replace us, then you got a problem. I think that this is something that is inbred in the history of America. And I think this is the problem with most people who don't want to see this is that they don't want to think that this nation is violent. They don't want to think that this nation is bad. They don't want to think that this nation comes up with these kinds of people, but we do. But we do. You know, to be transparent and honest with you, I think I'm still in that state of shock, even though I'm, you know, for many, they go, where have you been? And I go, I know I, I, I'm, I'm still smelling the roses sometimes, but yeah. you know, I, I think about, uh, Andrew Torba's book, uh, Christian nationalism. I think about Stephen Wolf's book, a case for Christian nationalism. I think about Doug Wilson. And, you know, the more I, I, I research this work and, and cover it for our community, um, it, it, it puts me in this state of going, I just can't believe I didn't see this before because it is all over the place. Go back further. Uh, let's talk about David Barton. David Barton primes the pump for all of this because he writes these Christian histories that are completely and erroneously false. And he lies. And he lies in the books. That's why he had a whole book pulled by his publisher. So when John Fayette came out against his book and started talking about this, I'm just forgetting the title right now. I mean, you've had people like this. It's not the current ones. You had David Barton, who, you know, most good evangelicals have heard at a church or bought his books. So none of you know history. This is the other part that kills me. It's like, you don't even know your own country's history because you read this crap. And as a historian, it drives me nuts. That makes sense. I I feel like as evangelicals, we're very ahistorical. You know, um, I, I I read um, last year. I read um, the Bible told them so by J. Russell Hawkins. You know, uh, just a mind blowing for me read of like I just had no framework that 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 it was Southern white evangelicals who fought like hell to maintain segregation. Because again, my my. Um, propaganda. I'm told is well. That was in the past. We moved on. No, the past is never happen. the past. Right. The past is never right. the past. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I I keep tabs on Charlie Kirk. I keep tabs on Turning Point USA. I know the pastors that that they're working with. I follow Awakened Church. I know about Rob McCoy, Jack Hibbs. You know, I know that Candace Owens is touring these places. I know that. And when I yeah. when I see who these pastors say, I mean, Dream City Church, twenty five thousand members strong, essentially where Charlie launched Turning Point Faith. You know, when you see that, you go. They, we are descending quickly into into neo-fascism because mm-hmm. all it takes, and I, I recommend Jason Stanley's book on this, How Fascism Works. You listen to that book and read it and you go, oh my God, like the writing is on the walls. And it absolutely, as a, as someone who's faithful to Jesus and identifies as a new evangelical, it, it honestly scares the hell out of me. Uh, yeah. And it makes me also very angry to see what is happening in these spaces. It, it, it is terrible. Yeah, no, it is. And it's like, you know, and they're willfully embracing it in under the guise of this is going to make us better Christians. That's what blows my 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 damn mind, if I could put it 
you know, politely. Yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 I go, guys, you, t- you're the ones who taught me to take the Bible seriously, take Jesus seriously. I'm doing that. And you're giving me these, these current slurs, you know, how I am quote unquote woke, you know, which is again, completely appropriate, appropriate from black culture. It's completely, I, I see it as, as a racist trope at this point in my life because it's, it's so inappropriate to use. It, it is a racist trope. And, and this is how they do. They take a word, they turn it to, to their own use. So, you know, the stuff that Elon Musk is saying about wokeism and all this other stuff, this is all stupid because nobody, nobody who was in the move, you know, in Black Lives Matter is even saying this anymore. But they have taken it and used it as this colloquialism for them not being able to say the N-word. I'm like, I'd really appreciate it if you would just say what you're really thinking. It'd be easier. That way we could just, we could, we could dispense with all the pretense, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 get on with it to the what you really do mean. Well, so yeah. yeah. Well, that 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 that's how the I think about the, about the word colorblind. That's a big thing in my space. Is oh, colorblind. Well, again, if you just read a little bit of history, and I'm not the academic here, you know that that was a a word used intentionally to, as a dog whistle for you know keeping things separate. Okay, we just see things as the way that they are. And how are things right now? You know, how are they yeah, frozen in time? Bad. Yeah, they're pretty bad, right? Pretty and bad. so even that language I hear now again. Five years ago, oh, that sounds great. But once you start reading, you go, wait a second. This is mm-hmm. all code. It is yeah. all code. And I think what concerns me is that we're seeing less and less of the code being used. And we're just seeing the quiet parts. I mean, when when a former sitting president is sitting down with Nick Fuentes, who denies the Holocaust, who says that that women should be burned at the stake if appropriate, you go, uh, you're not even hiding it anymore. And this is a former president. And there, there's no condemnation. There's no yeah. nothing. And people will say, you know, oh, this is just hyperbole. This is just a way to speak. But no, it's not hyperbole. It's 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 just a little click to get to those things, right? Yes, yes. So, click. so okay. How do we resist this? How do we? What do we do as people? I mean, I you know, I, I'm someone who's waking up to this slowly and surely, and I'm like, okay, what do I do? Trying to do what I can to resist this. You know, you teach on this stuff. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I think the first thing most white people hate to do, but they need to do is start talking about this at the kitchen table. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, your parents, you, you said your mother voted for Trump. I mean, you know, uncomfortable Christmas, but hey, like, mom, do, do you really want to be anti-Semite? You know, maybe you don't say it to her that harshly, but you just say, you know, that this is what this really means if you're voting for this person. And you are co-signing all of these things. Do you think that's what Jesus wants you to do? Do you think that Jesus, who he himself was a Jew, would have liked that of you? And you got to call a question. I mean, I think it starts at our homes, first of all. Secondarily, you got to stop going to these churches. And this is not to you. This is to anybody who's probably listening to these days. If you're sitting up under a pastor right now talking this crap, you believe it. Because if you're willing to let yourself say, well, it has a good ministry. I like the nursery. I like my friends. But you're willing to sit up under this. You're the same person who's going to be ready if somebody gets taken off to the gulag or something to say, I don't see the concentration camp. I don't see anything. I don't see those people getting hosed in the street or beat up or anything else. I don't see the discrimination because your life is comfortable. Part of the reason why so many evangelicals get caught up in places that they don't is because they never leave because they feel comfortable. Evangelicals hate discomfort. And when they don't feel comfortable and they'll hear a message they don't like, they just, okay, I just don't think that's a God. It's probably God telling you to get your ass up and get out. 
listen, we have to hear this stuff. I mean, my, my audience is is primarily white evangelicals. And what we say is we're trying to find better paths forward. And the only way we can do that is by listening and by and by changing, right? I mean, that, that's what repentance is. It, it's realizing, oh shit, um, I'm I I'm part of something I didn't know I was a part of, but now yeah. I'm aware and I have an obligation to go the other way and to do yes. everything I can to, to to do my part to 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 help dismantle what is doing so much harm to my neighbors. Yeah, but so many people don't want to go the other way. They want to say they're sorry. They want to, you know, give a little money or whatever. But, you know, you have to do something. And I think, you know, that's the first thing. I'm not asking people to be me, you know, to write and to stand up and teach and do all that. That's what my, you know, to put it in evangelical parlance, my calling is. But other people have different callings. And so I'm asked a lot well, what do you think we should do? How do we do this or whatever? I think the first thing is, you know, once you are self-aware, what are you doing with that self-awareness? Are you staying in the same space because you're comfortable? Are you are you not talking to the people who are in immediate you know, proximity to you? Are you not trying to reach across, you know, these boundary lines to learn something from somebody else? You know, and don't tell me you have a black friend. God, I'll just be bad. You know, that'll just make me tired. Cause that's like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying to you. What I am saying is, is that how are you really seeing what's happening in the rest of the world around you? You know, and that becomes very important. Does. I mean, I think about it personally often, you know, I'm, I think about that often. Um, you know, what, what do I do? Right. Because, or what do we do as a community? And I think even that, even that, that sense of individualism is still so ingrained in me where it's like, well, what can, you know, I'll just start fixing the problem. It's like, well, okay, before you, you know, like, you know, I don't want to hop in and start assuming that I know things that I'm not even supposed to be talking about. I think I need to sit yeah. and learn and then help be part and, and be led really. Cause I, I think, let's just be honest, Dr. Butler, white men love to come into spaces and go, don't worry. I figured it out. I'll take yes. care of it now. You know, and, and, and it's something as a white man steeped in evangelical culture that taught me that men are to lead. You know, it's something I have to be really hyper aware of because. And look what so, happened with men leading. With who? Looks what happened when men lead. Oh, yeah. I, so did you see that Stephen Wolf clip that I shared a while ago where he essentially says that a Christian nationalist country can't have women leading it because they're too empathetic and inclusive. That's what he, literally what he said. And I go, yeah, yeah. that I, sounds I, great I, to me. Yeah, <laughs> Sign I mean, me up. I know. <laughs> I do think about that. Like I look at the men who lead and I'm like, wait, you're telling me the answer is more patriarchy. The answer more is more Mark Driscoll. More meanness. <laughs> right. I mean, all what? the things that Jesus did not say. Right. <laughs> You think you think it's more Mark Driscoll is the answer to Mark Driscoll? Yeah, they do, they do, they really do. And I'm just like, <sighs> do, you, no. do, do, do you think? I mean, yeah, you know, you're 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 an academic. You 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 teach on this stuff. You're a professional. Do you think that that there is any hope for some of these people in these leadership positions to wake up and really change, or do you think it's like it just is what it is? You know, the the grip no, is too powerful. No, I'm gonna tell you why I don't have hope for them. Let me tell you why I don't have it. It's too rewarding to be who they are. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I have hope for people who want to come out of this <clears throat> and change. But the people who are in leadership right now, who are enjoying the money, the fame, the prestige, the private jets, the good friends, the the money rolling into their coffers, do you think they're going to change? This is a business. They're not changing. There's too many. There's too much reward in this. There's too much of a media industrial complex 
you know, on the right and the left that, you know, rewards this kind of behavior, but especially on the right. So I don't think that we get, we see a change at all in any of this. I don't think that, you know, unless somebody has a, you know, Damascus Road experience that they change. Right. And that could happen. I, you never know. But I also just think that at this particular juncture, none of these major figures have any reason to change at all. It's too rewarding. I, I tend to be in the same boat you are. I think when I went into this work in the beginning, I felt kind of altruistic. Maybe if I just show enough Bible, we can make enough sense of like what Jesus really says. But I think ultimately you're right. When you have the money, you have the fame, you have the fortune, you have the jets, you're going to to Trump's house, you know, to, to watch his fake documentary by Dinesh D'Souza. You know, it, the, it, it, that that level of prestige, why would you trade it? Isn't that God blessing you? I mean, that, that's how some of them see it. God is blessing me because I'm here. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put it to you like this. And I don't want to discount women in this either because white women carry a lot of this water. I just refuse to blurb a book. I'm not going to say by who. I could say the situation and say, and people would know exactly who it was. But I decided not to do it because of this person's past and the kinds of things that they have been involved in. They're not involved in that now. But, you know, it's like, I could probably blurb this book, even though I don't think that this person and I see eye to eye on certain things. But there's one particular event in their lives that they did. And I was like, I can't blurb this book. I can't co-sign this thing. There's just no way I can do it. And that person's an evangelical. But, you know, we have to also talk about the role of white women in the midst of all of this. And I think that's a hard thing for everybody to hear. But, you know, my sisters do not have a lot of solidarity with me. Some of them do, you know, but a lot of them don't because they like being underneath the patriarchy. Well, we have about maybe three, four minutes left. Can we talk about something that we we both are big fans of? Can we talk about the Philadelphia Eagles? Now they're kicking ass right now, baby. 12 and 1. I know. (laughs) 12 and one. If you would have told me at the beginning of the season that we're going to be 12 and one, I would not believe it. But I mean, Jalen Hurts is amazing. You know, I I, I had my doubts about Nick Sirianni, but you know, I'm a believer now. And you know, there's one thing I will fervently pray for and hope for is that we just murdered the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, same. You know, figuratively, of course, with a bad score right there in, you know, in the stadium, because what I don't understand, and for those of you Dallas Cowboy fans out here, here's your come to Jesus moment. How (laughs) can you continue to support a team that has not been in the Super Bowl in 26 years? I mean, Jerry Jones got y'all wrapped up. He's got all y'all money. You're buying these jerseys, you're buying the flags for your cars and everything else. But what do you have to show for it? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I don't disagree. I mean, I mean you're, I, I, it's yeah, completely yeah. off. I mean, listen, if the Eagles could survive chip, we yeah. could survive anything. <laughs> man, I'm still mad at that man. I can't stand him. I I I I I remember those days. You know, I, I'll be honest. They were you brutal. Know, I grew up in a world that my dad was not a big sports person. He was a musician. I played music professionally. But as I've done more and more of this work, I'm like, you know, sports helps you just to, to focus on something else. And I really got into sports the past few years. I become, you know, I'm right by Philadelphia. So, of course, the Eagles and yeah. all those teams. And one of my favorite things to do is on Monday morning, I love listening to sports talk radio just to hear the commentary. I mean, whether good or bad. Oh, yeah. What's going on? I love it. I love it. (laughs) But, you know, let me say something about the team that a lot of people don't know. This is actually a very Christian team. 
Really? And I think, yeah, really. And, you know, I have a colleague who teaches a class on religion and sports at Penn. And this is really interesting because even when Nick Foles was there, you know, they were praying all the time, everything. But people have this appearance of the Eagles because they remember what Eagles fans are like. And so they just, they translate that to the team. And I think that's so interesting to me that everybody just thinks, oh, they must be, be terrible guys. They must be tearing up stuff all the time. Yes, we are the team that booed Santa Claus, but Santa Claus deserved it. And yes, there used to be a jail at the, you know, at the old stadium, but, you know, there's not a jail now. Right. And, you know, it's this interesting kind of way about how Eagles fans are portrayed as though Dallas Cowboy fans are the greatest people on earth. But I'm like, they're dupes. And like, you keep <laughs> believing in this. And, and maybe the lesson here is, you know, that be like an Eagles fan, be realistic about where you are and where it, and, and what you believe in. Right. I mean, Eagles fans will tell you if you're screwing up, you know, if they lose next week, God forbid, they're not going to lose. Right. Um, but, you know, if they did, we'd be telling them about what they did, but we'd still love the team. You know, right. And I think there's something in that story about, you know, the the the, the relationship between a team and, you know, people who are, you know, hard, mostly working class people who really can't maybe afford to go to the games, but they're out there tailgating and they're going to the house and they're doing their little thing. And it's the it's the Sunday ritual here. A hundred percent. I mean, I live right across the water. I can see Pennsylvania pretty much from, from my house. That's how close yeah. I am to, to Pennsylvania. And I, Philly has been always been like my city because that, that's the closest city to me. I love the culture of Philly. I love the FU attitude. I love the blue collar. It's, it's a gritty city. And I, I love that about the town. And I, like you said, I do love that, that Philadelphia fans, especially Eagles fans, they, 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 they will give their team shit when they deserve it because they love them. Because they yeah. love them, they said you could do better. That's why we're going to call this out. And, and he, he, I, I absolutely love it. And I'm with you. I hope that 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 Dallas has their heads hung real low when they walk back into that tunnel. Because they, they, you know, yeah. Eagles destroyed the Giants this past week. That was a great game. They did. They and did. I, I think we have a real boy. shot. Yeah. No, I love yeah, it. So it was terrible. That's terrible uh, in a good way. Yeah. Right. Of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, Doctor Butler, I, I gotta, I gotta say again. Uh, just great having you on and thank you for sharing your expertise and your wisdom with this community. Where can folks find you? Where can they follow you? I, I, I love you tweeting. Where else are well, you? Well, now, you know, we're all decamping. So you can find me on Twitter. Um, you might not be able to follow me right away because I'm locked up on Twitter, but I'm on Mastodon. I'm on post. I have a website, anthonybutler.com. I'm on Substack, so I haven't started really writing seriously yet, but the first one will probably come out later this week. So you can definitely find me on Substack. That's a great place to probably connect with me first off. So yeah, all, all in those places because Elon has us all trying to figure out what the next thing is. But yeah, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll probably pick you up. Fair enough. Well, thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that.